Behold! The sword of power. Excalibur. Welcome to episode 12 of the Oh Gosh, Oh Golly, Oh Wow podcast, the podcast where we talk about the Marvel comic series Excalibur and nothing but Excalibur every week for 126 plus weeks. This week in episode 12, we are looking at Excalibur number 12. They call me Billy the Kid. It's the start of the cross time caper and we are ready for this interdimensional adventure. The issue was originally published in September 1989. The creative team is Chris Claremont on writing, Alan Davis on pencils and plotting, Paul Neary on inks, Tom Orzechowski on lettering, and Terry Cavanaugh on editing. But on this Easter day, when Christ rose from the dead, may one night here, through victory in arms, find the grace to draw the sword and be king. This is a fun one, and we've got a fun guest who I know is keen to join us in celebrating all this fun, who I will introduce in a moment. First, the usual introduction to your usual crew. I'm Dr. Anna Papard. I write about comics for lots of your favorite comic book websites, and if you're listening to this as a comic scholar, lots of your favorite academic journals. When I'm not teaching comics, I'm writing about representations of gender and sexuality in pop culture, and I'm also busy being Kurt Wagner's unofficial PR manager. Sometimes I'm doing all of these things at once. I am joined, as always, by Mav. Take it away. Uh Hi, my name is Christopher Maverick, Knight of the Roundtable, Fighter of Dragons, Defender of Damsels, Lord Champion of the Realm. Um, most call me his royal batness, but you can call me Mavi the Kid. Uh, <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'm a, I'm a adjunct instructor at Duquesne University and Mount Aloysius College, both in uh, both in Pennsylvania, um, too far apart to make driving to either of them comfortable. But you know, I'm a knight, as I just said. So um, <laughs> I um, I study literary and cultural studies, um, generally in depictions of 20th century pop culture, and I focus on issues of class, race, gender, sexuality, fun stuff like that. I'm co-host of another podcast called Vox Popcast, where we discuss topics like this on a weekly basis. And I am excited because the cross time caper is starting and that's what we're talking about today. It's going to be great. I know. We're (laughs) so excited to have Alan Davis back and to be starting on this very special definitive arc of Excalibur. Andrew, would you like to say a little bit about yourself? Hi, I'm Dr. Andrew DeMann. I'm a lecturer at St. Jerome's University uh, and the project lead for the Claremont Run, which is a Chris Claremont-based, largely social media-engaged project. Uh, And I'm happy to say that I'm excited to talk about Nigel Frobisher today. (laughs) The first time that Nigel has been interesting. I'm looking forward to that, too. I don't think anyone's ever said those words before out loud. Anyone, not just you, anyone. (laughs) Yes, there'll be interesting things to talk about with Nigel. So our regular crew is graced this week by a guest who loves Excalibur about as much as anybody I've ever met, who I'm also privileged to call a friend, Kathy Stevens. Welcome, Kathy. Thank you for having me. Kathy is a former teacher and current supermom of two incredible girls who are undoubtedly superheroes in training. She is also, as I mentioned, one of the biggest Excalibur fans I know. I met Kathy about a year ago in fandom circles when I was getting back into X-Men after a lengthy absence. We hit it off chatting about Kitty and Kurt, who are both very dear to our hearts, and chatting with you about Excalibur played a role in getting me back into the series and rereading it, sometimes in new ways. You've given me a new appreciation for some of the later issues, which I didn't have necessarily before. And since you were part of the journey of rediscovery that led to this pod, I very much wanted to have you on the pod. So I'm so excited that you're here and welcome. Well, thank you. I'm happy to be here. So speaking of journeys, let's talk about that first. Before we get into our summary of the issue and all of our first impressions stuff, I wanted to talk, Kathy, a little bit about your journey of discovering Excalibur because you have kind of an interesting thing I know from talking to you before of you know reading it when you were younger and then kind of rediscovering it when you were a little bit older would you like to tell us a little bit about that when did you first read this series sure um 
I first discovered Excalibur when I was about 12 or 13 years old. My brother used to read X-Men comics and a neighbor friend of ours, and they really enjoyed Wolverine and Nightcrawler a lot. And so when the sword is drawn came out, to the best of my brother's and my combined memories, we bought it mainly because it had Nightcrawler in it, and I just absolutely loved it. I probably read that issue a hundred times. I loved Kitty and really enjoyed all the dynamics between the five of them in that issue especially. And then I bought the next seven issues and then stopped. For reasons I don't honestly remember, I'm <laughs> sure that the art threw me. I did not have a comics background at all, and I think the art kind of threw me. And then just getting busy with other things, I kind of just let it go. But a couple of years ago, my daughters were getting a little older, and I just thought they might enjoy it the way I had. And so kind of took that dive back in, and I have just been hooked ever since. And yeah. So when you kind of took that dive back in, was that when... When you finally sort of read the whole series because if you stopped sort of initially and then yeah. you went back and read the whole thing right yes that's right so when I kind of rediscovered it I guess I could say I did I finally collected all of the issues plus the special editions and all of that and read every single one and I loved it just as much as I did all those years ago yeah <laughs> maybe more <laughs> That's adorable. I think that you've also bought yourself some Alan Davis art or some signed pieces as well, I believe. I I did. <laughs> um, <laughs> because of my cousin, actually, I discovered a signed copy of The Sword is Drawn that was for sale, and it's signed by Alan Davis, and so I have that hanging on my wall. Oh, yeah, that's, that's amazing. <laughs> I've had, <laughs> since we've been doing the podcast, like Alan Davis has been selling stuff lately, and they've been sending me stuff. And one of the things that was for sale was the pencils from issue 43 which is my favorite issue and I was like there's no way I have the money for this but if I did thank you for sending that to me and I would purchase it if I had any oh, capability wow. of doing so <sighs> that's awesome but anyway we're so excited to have you Kathy we're gonna get Thanks. back to some first impressions after we do our summary but let's jump into that now I know we've got listeners reading along with the pod which is amazing and we're so touched by how sweet and enthusiastic you've all been you've seriously been amazing but I also know that we've got listeners who may not have read this issue for a while so we'll start as usual with our plot summary Excalibur number 12 my friend call me Billy the Kid opens in a medieval fantasy vein with a young knight on a white horse wearing some radical wraparound shades and listening to music on a device that's halfway between a Walkman and an iPod. He helpfully tells us that he's a prince on a nightly quest to prove himself. Suddenly the sky opens up and out barrels the lightning force Reich Rail train. The train then crashes messily in the field and the prince, whose name is Prince William, marvels at that for a bit before becoming distracted by an unconscious Kitty Pride slumped against a tree and guarded by Lockheed. William is immediately smitten and presumes the worst of Lockheed, who he tries and badly fails to name. Meanwhile, back in Brighton, England, in our usual 616 dimension, our old not-friend Nigel Frobisher is doing what he promised to do last issue, which is present some kind of offer to the TechNet. On the way, he's assaulted by numerous TechNet members, including floating baby Joy Boy, who makes Nigel's desires flesh by turning him into a muscle-bound hunk, and then into Courtney Ross, and then into a combination of the two. It's a very interesting scene, which Andrew alluded to, which we will certainly be talking about today. Nigel is literally putty in the TechNet's hands by the time he's handed over to Gatecrasher, who's in the middle of negotiating with the local town council about a weather manipulation arrangement meant to attract more tourists. Back in the not-quite-medieval world, Prince William, knocked unconscious by Lockheed, is being tended to by Excalibur. When he wakes up, he's even more smitten with Kitty. He also recognizes Captain Britain as Captain Marshall, Lord Champion of the Realm. Megan seems to have a connection with this world as well. She's seen dancing with sparkly joy with the fairy folk, a spectacle that confuses Brian and entrances Kurt. Discussions are had about what's happened and how Widget works, but they don't get very far before a giant tentacle monster called a shaitan appears and seizes Alistair and Kitty. Kitty manages to save the professor, but at the cost of herself. She's kidnapped by the monster who takes her to his castle lair. There, she's dropped into a glass tube next to her medieval doppelganger and guarded by a very butch ogre, and I do mean very butch. She is wearing leather-studded bondage-inspired undies and a t-shirt that says, helpfully, butch. Megan's fairy friends tell the rest of Excalibur where to find Kitty and they quickly show up to rescue her. Brian tries first and gets knocked on his butt by the ogre. Rachel is more successful until she's almost taken down by a magical moat that looks a lot like the living wall from Inferno. A series of battles wrap things up. Rachel battles back the living moat, interestingly refusing help from Megan. Brian gets his moment beating up the ogre, and Kurt teleports Prince William into the castle where he rescues Kitty and her doppelganger, Princess Catherine. Also, the entire castle crumbles to dust around them after Brian tosses the defeated ogre into the already precarious
mysterious structure. Amid the ruins of the castle, Catherine swoons over William, who only has eyes for Kitty, while Megan, charming and blue, swoons over Kurt, watched by an unamused Brian. The issue ends with Prince William down on one knee, proposing marriage to a baffled Kitty. So, Excalibur is finally on the cross-time caper. Um, we usually do first impressions here, but today I want to jump right into my first question because it is a question about first impressions. Twist already. So in some ways, cross-time in some ways, cross-time caper feels like a natural extension of what Excalibur had already been doing, but I think it's a new direction as well. To me, this almost feels like a new first issue of sorts in terms of how we're setting up mm -hmm. a new context for these characters, a new mission for this team. So I wanted to ask all of you, based on this issue, which I know we're all rereading, like what is the cross-time caper? When this event starts here and we have that cross-time caper banner across the top of this comic, what do we learn from this issue about what this event is going to look like? And yes, privilege, I'm going to kick it to you first, Kathy. If just based on this issue, this event starting here, what do you make of what the heck the cross-time caper might be? It seems to be, based on this issue, an adventure in getting home again. And I also think it is something of an experience exploring relationships and what family is going to mean to them going forward because to their knowledge the x-men are dead possibly to their knowledge i guess i should say yeah um, it has been confusing as we've been talking yes it about. has been well whether they're dead or not they are still looking for definition of family but yeah a mission home i would say yeah see that's interesting because i want to talk about yeah what the central conflict is of this and like yeah it is like so much of it they're actually just fighting to like get home which like creates an interesting kind of callback to this being this team founded in trauma as you're saying right really it's a journey of discovery and that's made very much apparent perhaps through this event i'll let andrew and mav though jump in though what what do you think what is this event about well one thing i think it kind of showcases going back to what you were just saying anna is it's a rejection of concept in some ways because excalibur is you know british x-men that's that's sort of what was implied on the label and if we look at the actual history of excalibur we've got like three four issues set in britain that are extremely extremely British uh, and like you know we'll, we'll see all the landmarks and all that kind of stuff uh, and then they're off they're, they're off to murder world which is a silly place and they're off to inferno which is a silly place uh, they get back to Britain and fight some Nazis and then they're off again so you're detaching them from Britain which I think to me is kind of a rejection of concept you're just saying we don't need this to be the British X-Men book we've got good characters we've got a really strong dynamic uh, and they work really well in silly situations so let's let's put them in one for an extended period of time and yet you're always reminding us Andrew that the multiverse concept comes from the Captain Britain comics. So as much as it's not set in the Marvel UK sort of context anymore, is that context sort of still extending into these adventures? I mean, we've talked a little bit about That's British style social satire, right, before and British style absurdism before and then this event leans into those things really hard, right, with the Captain Britain core sort of at the center of some of these stories as well. Yeah, that that's a great question, right? Because like, to what extent does the understanding of a setting such as in this issue depend upon your understanding of actual Britain or actual British history? Clearly, it's riffing on it extensively. Um, or at least riffing on stories of British pop cultural versions yeah. of history. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that's what it is for me. So you said, what is this like? You used the word reset, Anna. If this book were published in 2021 instead of 1989, this would be cross-time caper Excalibur number one, first issue in an exciting new direction. They would have rebooted the numbering on it. This is, in so many ways, the first issue of Excalibur as I think that we, as much as I love those 11 issues that came before, more or less, you know, we've, we've talked the last couple <laughs> about some of, my, some of my problems with certain things, but I loved a lot of what came before that this is what excalibur is going to be for the foreseeable future this it's a very long event <laughs> yeah um not and it says you know part one of nine that's generous yeah. <laughs> it stops at nine is you know spoilers for the future but this is the direction the book's going to go and yes they're not in britain proper but for me this is the most british that the series has been to date and what i mean by that is it's not about the setting because when I read this in 1989, I had never been to the UK yet. I have now, but at the time I hadn't been, right? What I had seen was a Doctor Who there, here and there. I'd seen a Red Dwarf. I'd seen a Tomorrow People. And this is exactly that. This so much borrows from this 
sci-fi tradition of what happens in a hitchhiker's guide to the galaxy or doctor who this is very much in that vein and i was suddenly able to go i recognize this you know some of our listeners have said you know you guys haven't talked that much about who yet and we haven't but we we, we have a little bit this is very much that this is yeah not only are we acknowledging the joke of what weird happenings organization stands for we're just doing that show now yeah one of the other questions i had about this i do think think it's a reset. I mean, I'm the one who asked that question. But I also think that part of the reason that Cross Time Caper is often thought of as sort of the definitive Excalibur story arc is because it sort of distills a lot of the things that had already been present in the series in some ways. And I want to get back to that by sort of making this a first impressions question again. And I want to kick this to Kathy again, which is like, what is it, Kathy, that particularly kind of drew you to this series? And like, because I know you didn't read the Cross Time Caper the first time you read it, so you don't know how you would have responded to that at the time. But in terms of the things that particularly drew you to this series. I'm sort of interested in getting back to that question and then maybe sort of extending from there into whether those things follow forward into Cross Time Caper or not. Like if you had to pitch somebody on Excalibur, what would you say? What is it that particularly drew you to it? I think what really drew me to it initially was the friendships and the relationships between the characters and the kind of zany adventures they were having. And it was kind of different from the beat-em-up sort of X-Men type stuff that my brother's comics were. And I really liked that. And as far as it extending forward, I mean, it kind of stays that way for a good portion of the series. And certainly the cross time caper continues that zaniness for sure, uh, probably amps it up quite a bit even. So were you reading, like this was sort of like one of the first kind of comics that you'd read, right? Like did it like yes. strike you as something that was very different from sort of like other media that we, you were consuming? Was that sort of part of the draw for you? That's a hard I, question yeah, to that's add, a like, really make hard question. For, for me to like be like, put yourself in the mind space of your 12 year old self and then like, I'm, trying to think back, yeah. I'm trying to think back to the other things that i was why i mean cartoon travel travel multi-dimensionally um, back to being 12 <laughs> and tell us what sure. you were thinking um yeah i mean it i think it kind of probably did go along with some of the kind of cartoons that i was watching and interested in and and even some of the shows that my mom enjoyed some of the science fiction type stuff it felt very fantasy and imaginative and creative in some of those ways with just the setting and the things that were happening. And so I really enjoyed that because it was a little bit familiar just from watching, you know, cartoons about cat people and um, <laughs> <laughs> and superheroes living on Etheria um, when I was younger. And yeah, those are Thundercats and, and yes. She-Ra and He-Man seem like good oh, yes. intertext for Excalibur. Absolutely. So yeah, I think it probably did have a familiar feeling to it. Let's ask that question then. Like what from these opening pages, what is going to be the context of this world that we're dropped into well one thing that struck me maybe maybe speaking to that a little bit is um just like the simple way that they established the setting and it's something that you see a lot in like disney of the 1940s and 1950s you have these like um let's call them sexy dryads these like naked yeah. fairies just hanging around for really no reason other than to establish a visual motif to keep that sort of um, um sexually charged atmosphere in play i think that's an example of like one of those small details those little choices that's really doing something tonally for the book that's that's interesting, yeah, because that is brought up right in like the second panel. We have these sexy naked fairies, right? Getting us into a certain context right away. I loved it. I thought that for one thing, having Davis back puts it a visual return to form, but it's not just Davis's art. The last two issues of this were very dreary. It was serious stuff, whether you like it or not. It was totally very different. And this is a return to what I, at that time and now, I want Excalibur to be, right? Like, so, yeah, there's the sex farce of it, but it's not, what's been great about the way Excalibur works is it's not dirty. You know, it's certainly not pornographic sex farce. And it's not raunchy the way a, um, I don't know, a Porky's or an American Pie or you know any of the more classic stuff it is very natural so the way andrew described the fairies as you know very disney-like yeah this is straight out of fantasia so i don't think it just sets the sexiness of it which i think is very important obviously if anybody's ever spoken to me for more than five minutes about comic books you know how important i think the sexiness of it is but it's a playfulness to it that really very much connects you to oh my god i get it megan is, is a disney princess she says oh my god this feels like home and then she's frolicking around like cinderella talking to the flora and fauna 
because that's part of it will become an even more importantly a part of her character later but it is part of their world and it's what makes this work it is a unique blending of genre of the science fictiony stuff the doctor who stuff with the disneyfication and with classic claremontian x-men storytelling i mean i don't want to i don't want to sleep on the fact that this really is still an x-men event adventure yeah and I'm, well i'm glad you brought up the genre bending you know we've talked about that so many times as being definitive of excalibur you know that approach to genre bending and then when you think about the world that they're dropped into where immediately we see genre bending right like we see science fictional elements and like sort of medieval fantasy elements sort of blended here even in terms of the design of this prince with his modern sunglasses and his walkman and then he's got the lance that's like a telephoto lance where he presses the button and it extends right you have like all these sort of different elements sort of woven together here i wanted to point out too that you said that it just feels less dreary now that alan davis is back on the book the first descriptive boxes and the first panel in this issue are at first glance this is a world much like our own that the air never smelled so sweet nor any forest grew so rich and green and i think it's so great because the colors are really really vibrant and it is just such a tonal difference from the last two issues almost in every way well is it important that we're being dropped into this world with this genre bending like is that part of the context of this event i mean i'm kind of pushing us towards you know that question of this being the definitive excalibur event so yes we're dropping in this world once again in media res right like there's no explanation I mean, yes, I read the last issue, so I know they got teleported away. Well, but... I mean, you could be forgiven for misunderstanding what happened at the end of that yeah, last issue. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And this is not, like, it's not even obviously a science fiction story. It's called the Cross Time Caper, but really it's just like a, look, you're in a weird place now. We're going to be doing this medieval element, and I'm not explaining stuff, but this is the fun thing that, this is the kind of stuff that we deal with here in Excalibur. And it just feels a lot goes on between the artwork the writing a lot happening in the story you know last issue was very talky and i like talky books like i like a lot of um what was the thing that you said andrew if, if claremont had his way every every book would just be 20 pages of people walking through a park <laughs> walking you through know? the village talking yeah, yeah. <laughs> right and there's no village last issue but there was a lot of that and i actually really like that but this is um there's a lot of talking in this issue, but it is a lot of action and storyline. And, you know, it's a snap, 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 snap. There's a lot going to go go on and just a mile a minute for a book that, you know, except for Inferno, doesn't really have that a lot. You know, we talked about my favorite fight ever is the juggernaut fight, which is really like two pages. Right. But this is not that this is like, yes, we're going to fight an ogre and we're going to fight a weird uh, swamp monster thing and the shaitan and like there's a lot tentacles there's a lot of tentacles yeah yeah so and so i like that it's doing a storyline progression through the farcical adventure you know they are suddenly on a quest and they don't even know what they're questing for like you know you're like kathy you said it's the quest to go home but they don't know that from this issue i mean like you've read the next 20 right right? Right, so so like in fact i believe if i'm if i miss my guess i don't think they even actually call her princess catherine in this do they like anna called her that in the recap but i'm not sure they ever actually use her name in this issue oh i thought they did but maybe they not definitely they definitely call her a princess they call her a princess i don't and it's, her name either yeah yeah and it must, and be, it must and I, be in the next issue I'm yeah and ahead. i know it is i mean and i know it's hard for me to divorce it because i you know i've been reading ahead as well right and also i've got 30 years of experience with this story so like i know i know who she is there's so much that's just going on and i don't know if i would have noticed in 1989 that she didn't have a name for one issue because you just don't have time to stop and think about it well i like that you know we talked about the artificial context of murder world being and you know (laughs) even had some minor complaints about sort of the lack of things making sense within that space the lack of rules but sending them on cross time caper where you can invent the rules of whatever world you want as you're going to those new worlds it's like they get to be in a murder world all the time and they don't have to explain it right which is very convenient for kind of the tone of excalibur kind of this zany humor that Excalibur already had right which I really like that about it a lot I mean what about in terms of sort of character growth and character building like we've talked about doppelgangers quite a few times 
but I think that there's still a lot that we haven't talked about in terms of how does that speak to sort of this mission of this book as a journey of self-discovery? How does going to these different worlds speak to that kind of mission or that kind of larger context? Like we see Megan having a certain relationship with this particular world. We see doppelgangers of them emerging in these various worlds, sort of other selves that they could have been that prompt self-reflexive investigations of who they are as characters. Is this a super important context for Crosstime Caper that's being set up here? Is this part of the identity of the book? I feel like this is an Andrew question because I feel like you're going to have something interesting to say about like what's kind of the narrative significance of interacting with versions of yourself in terms of like I don't want to call it a buildings roman because it is that for Kitty perhaps but the other characters are older and yet there's that element here isn't there? I think so it's it's really what we're talking about is alternative history storytelling right which is actually not really much of a thing outside of niche science fiction when, when this comes out we're still a few years away from like steampunk and um, more proper alternate history stuff generally speaking it's, it's considered a very niche genre in terms of being very what's the word i'm looking for here intertextual like it depends on your knowledge on a lot of different things so like for example in this one you need to know a little bit about um you know camelot and king arthur and um the shaitan is from islamic culture the uh, um, dragon is obviously from british culture we, we've got a lot of things intersect um so yeah I, I think we've seen that laid out in the past few issues with the arrival of nazi excalibur which we describe as kind of training wheels to setting up more complex alternate realities and thus a parallel multi-dimensional consideration of identity and the impact of like nurture on identity so there's a lot of like dense psychological stuff happening one thing i will say i think one of the important elements in terms of the previous issues getting to the cross time caper because we're talking about this as like a sort of soft reboot claremont's really good at understanding narrative rhythm when it comes to character development so you'll always have like a, a really intense action-oriented issue and then like some character building issues and then the action-oriented issues i would argue that we would not have been ready for the cross time caper without the previous issues of excalibur which were all about building those character dynamics and relationships and i'm going to make a train metaphor and be like that lame <gasps> they're bringing baggage with them they have their bags <gasps> oh! and are ready to go on the cross time caper i'll be quiet now <laughs> no that was perfect that was perfect i love that so much yeah i love what you were saying too about the nazis as we talked about before you know being training wheels and then you see more complex doppelgangers moving forward which the nazi one is sort of an easy one because they were almost absolute inversions of our heroes and that's sort of easy to reject that version of yourself right when it is a total inversion but here you have complex doppelgangers sort of starting here which are similar to you but different to you in complex ways and sort of negotiating what those similarities are and what those differences are you know like i'm gonna go ahead and call her princess catherine again because i already did kitty and princess catherine aren't as different as nazi excalibur and regular excalibur right they have to kind of negotiate those more complex differences maybe in terms of getting back to some of the character dynamic stuff do we want to just talk about because i don't even know which moment to focus on here there's so many like love triangles yeah. and character dynamics here and maybe we could just like get at talking about some of sort of our favorite moments or scenes along this line because i can't even pick one there's so many interesting little dynamics in this totally zany story it's such a great excalibur issue in terms of how it still manages to like be such a convincing character development issue despite having all of that going on and maybe i'll kick it back to you again kathy thinking about this issue where there's sort of specific little character moments or beats or sort of pauses between the action that kind of stood out to you or like have a particularly soft spot in your heart perhaps i mean i have it open right now to the scene where prince william is waking up and kitty is uh -huh. smiling down at him and i'm Me like too. oh th that alone <laughs> is just like such a wonderful scene oh yeah i like that scene too and then on the the very next page when the prince is asking if she has any suitors and nightcrawler says last i checked an area one adorable oh and then brian tells him that lockheed eats them yeah they're like <laughs> i love that little thing of them razzing her that's like totally mm -hmm. adorable yeah that that would definitely be one of mine right there it's such Mad a it's such a dad big mom big brother moment <laughs> yes, too. like it's like oh it no is. you know the dragon will eat you <laughs> And they're yeah. like the smiles that they both have. They're just like so delighted. Like they're, they're finding the time for those like little family type joy moments. Like within all of this, it's just so Excalibur. Other moments that stood out to us, character building things, so many love triangles. I really liked Brian's entrance onto the scene where he just kicks open the door and says, found an exit. Yes. That's a good Brian moment. <laughs> Yes, I like Brian in this dark costume that he's wearing here too. I have to say, I'm not, everyone knows listening to this podcast already is that I'm a Kurt girl, but Brian's looking good in this dark costume in this issue, I have to say. <laughs> What's left of it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, 
if I think of this as the rebuilding issue, right, as the, as the the soft reboot, I like that we're getting, I mean, I certainly don't think everybody should skip the previous 11 issues, but like you could jump on here. If this is the trade paperback, you could start here and you sort of get that there are these love triangles that are going to be a driving part of the story. There's the Alistair, Rachel, Kitty one, which we know I hate, you know, um, there's the Brian, Megan, Kurt one, which doesn't take center stage, but they give you enough to know what's going oh. on. There's right? some like, good. Yeah. yeah. The other one that I was going to mention was on that same page we were talking about. So this is the page where Prince William wakes up with Kitty looking down at him. And then it's the page with Brian and Kurt razzing <laughs> about Kitty. And then where Megan is dancing with the fairies and Brian yells, Megan, like, what are you doing? And then Kurt says, I've never seen her imagined anyone so radiant. And then in the next panel, we got Kurt and Brian both looking at them. And like the expression that Kurt has, I don't even know how I would describe that, but just humbled. And, and I don't know, got, like, yeah, he's got a totally different yellow in his eyes than the rest of the they're using this yellow in order to highlight how much she's glowing over all of them as like their mm -hmm. highlight color kurt's eyes are yellow to start with and they do allow you to focus on his eyes there's it's the center of focus for that panel is you can see that he is especially staring so you know that he's into her and that's important right like it's this issue is not going to focus on how much she's, he's into her but it's important and it gives you the same thing with at the very last page when brian has this look of jealousy as megan temporarily turns into her nightcrawler form again just to say something to kurt like i don't think this is accidental i think she did it intentionally there to be silly but you get that brian's got jealousy and then you get the kitty catherine william love triangle that like sort of begins here and this book you know andrew always likes to call it sex farce this book is about how everyone in this book is in love with someone else and they don't yeah. know it <laughs> that person doesn't know right like like literally it's another one of those things that you know if we just all sit down and have a conversation we could probably solve this issue but we're not but we're not going to because that's where plot comes from and it's delightful plot right some of them i don't i don't have to like every relationship you know i i i'm not a brian fan but I like the love triangle. I think the Alistair Kitty Rachel one is stupid, but I get where it's going. And obviously, I mean, I, there's no point in which I'm reading this where I think that Kitty's going to end up with William. You know, this character is clearly not long for the universe. He's, it's, we're clearly not going to stay here, even though this is only the first issue. But I'm invested just because I think it's interesting that like, oh my God, he just proposed to her. You know, he's only from the first page of this book. This is fascinating. And it's so fitting for Excalibur that the cliffhanger is it's not we're gonna die it's like is someone gonna get married <laughs> Kid, and kitty's 14 15 years old i mean yeah. you know how often does she ever propose to i mean actually obviously in her case yeah, all the, it, all the like, time it turns out times, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. at least once before but yeah most most 14 year old girls not often kitty this is tuesday you know this happens <laughs> i want to just because we've you know a few issues in the run now without alan davis and it's just like that thing that you're saying about kurt's expression too it's like it's the complexity right like i I mean that panel where he's looking at Megan and it's not just that he's looking at her with awe or wonder there's like multiple emotions that are sort of written into his face and you get a really specific contrast between the way that Kurt is looking and the way that, that Brian is looking and there's like a wistfulness and a tragedy and a helplessness to the way that Kurt is looking at her and then in the last panel that you brought up as well too he's smiling in this very kind of nervous way almost and like blushing a little bit kind of one of those smiles you have the tension upped and you have the complex emotions upped just by Davis's really 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 fine skill with character work and facial modeling other moments like andrew do you have any other ones that you want to highlight i feel like there should be other character moments that we should spotlight here. yeah this is outside the team but i absolutely adore that TechNet is just chilling in brighton and hanging out with the town <laughs> yes. council that's perfect that's where you would find TechNet. i don't know whether we should talk about the nigel thing first or second because i want to get into some of the more character stuff in this issue but if you do want to talk about it now we can because it's sort of going to be looming over the discussion since it doesn't fit kind of neatly in with the rest of the story. Let's keep talking about some character stuff then and maybe come back to Nigel since it's sort of separate from the rest of the story. We'll keep our listeners in suspense. Sure. But what do we think then about, I mean, you brought up the marriage proposal for Kitty. What do we think about this as a story for Kitty? I mean, to a certain extent, you know, it's a bit strange perhaps to have Kitty in this space with all these adult superheroes. And that's always kind of been Kitty's role within X-Men. And we have that continuing through Excalibur. But what's going on here in terms of the, making this like a story about Kitty being lured into princesshood? And I think we all know that that's, again, <laughs> like the character of Prince William, not going to last very long. But princess narratives, obviously 
a, a particularly large footprint in the culture that is sold to young girls. And we've talked about Kitty being a very different young female protagonist than we have in a lot of other media. Why is it going to sort of the well of princesshood? What are princess stories? Like, how are we interacting with those here? Is this kind of a fractured fairy tale satire critique kind of thing that we have going on with Kitty here? Well, one thing I could maybe speak to is just the the build up to this, because the last three issues were all about Kitty being decentralized romantically. It was all about Alistair mooning over Rachel as opposed to Kitty. So having a narrative in which Kitty is, you know, being positioned as a princess who's instantly affecting a prince who proposes for marriage. I, I think that's a nice way to kind of surface those tensions uh, and to create a different perspective that can, you know, uh, um, allow the character to develop a little bit further. Well, and I wonder if it's supposed to make us see Kitty in a different light too, in terms of, again, we talk about Davis's skill with character modeling, that panel where he's waking up and seeing her, we have Kitty modeled in a very beautiful way, right? Sort of her yeah, beautiful smile. Beauty, right? and we have yeah yeah exactly and we have flipped obviously right interestingly and then we have like he gives her a really nice sort of cat eye on her eyes even you know really looking her making her look quite glamorous in those couple of panels but uh, yeah I don't know like I mean I guess I'm just trying to think about like where does this fit in the context of us understanding Kitty as sort of a counterpoint to some of those princess narratives that would have been being sold at the time and I mean that could be an interesting question for you too Kathy in terms of your attraction to that character like at that time right what drew you to Kitty did she stand out to you as like a very different type of character than you'd encountered in sort of other media at the time that you were 12 and reading this? Oh yeah, definitely. A lot of the princess movies, the princess is being rescued, helpless. She's just this beautiful maiden that can't do anything. Um, I think of if you look at the movie Sleeping Beauty, Sleeping Beauty's barely in it and she's asleep for most of it. Um, it's really more a movie about the prince and the fairies. But Kitty really is her own person and when something needs to be taken care of, she goes and takes care of it and she may not be successful, but she's not afraid to try and she's not afraid to take risks to solve a problem or or whatever and she's allowed to be imperfect right which is really important for female characters who like often i mean we've talked a little bit about kitty being kind of a mary sue but the way i think she isn't a mary sue is that she does make a lot of mistakes i mean going all the way back to that original werewolf story it was her doing things that she shouldn't have done that kind of got them into all of that trouble and it's part of how she's a hero because she was taking initiative but it's also part of how she isn't perfect how she isn't like a mary sue character right i mean she has elements of the mary sue but she She's a character who's coming into her own and kind of learning and growing. And I think her ability to be perfect, for me anyway, yeah. is really important. She's impetuous. Going back to X-Men days, Kitty very much jumps into situations without... The, now, she's when she's left behind because, oh, you can't come on this, you're too young, and she has time to think, and then she'll often come back and save the day, you know, back to her earliest adventures. But if you take her on a mission at this point in her career, she is very likely to, as smart as she is, you know, act and then think, or act while thinking rather than planning yeah if you want to see who kitty pride is compared to a disney princess you literally put her in a specimen jar next to a disney princess and that's right. exactly yes, what happens yes, yes. yes. <laughs> yes. and and then we should talk about Catherine, which i mean we'll, she'll come up more in, in future episodes well, in the next, next episode, one, yeah. where she gets to do stuff but like Catherine, literally like when brian shows up and he's like are you a prince he's like nope and she's like well can you wait you know <laughs> you know because because i gotta be rescued by a prince there's a way these things are done you know that's that's what she is she's trying to like she doesn't want to upset the apple cart kitty is all about upsetting the apple cart that's all she is and it's very deliberate too right like the scene that leads to them being in the castle is because kitty saves alistair from the monster and allows herself to be taken right so she has a hero moment there of like doing the self-sacrificing thing and then i really liked and i don't think i noticed this the first time i read the issue but how yeah princess Catherine is like i have to be saved by a prince and she's saved by a sequence of women you know like it's first kitty arrives there who's not really saving her but still it's like kitty arrives there and she's the wrong person and then megan and rachel arrive there as well right they're the ones that end up saving her nope nope can't do this you know it, I, I love that about the moment it's a breaking of expectation but it's a self-awareness the one that really makes it for me is the ogre saying I love being a villain. <laughs> you know, like he has no other motivation other than my job here. You know, I'm a villain. My job is to capture princesses. That's what I do. <laughs> you know? 
let's talk about the ogre. The other two definite character things I want to talk about within this storyline are like the ogre and I want to talk about the Megan and Rachel dynamic because their interplay is going to kind of become a running theme and it's something that we had brought up back when we talked about issue number eight. They had that strange fusion, something happened there and sort of the relationship between them and their powers is going to be kind of a through line. So I want to talk about that. But what's going on with this ogre? Like Andrew, thoughts about how this fits into Claremont's into Claremont's vision what's going on here I would call this lampshading right this is a thing Claremont does a lot with sort of um, um, subversive depictions of fetishism he was very well known for it by this point in time Uh, so why not just have the ogre wear it really really over the top obviously Like, are we getting away with it because it's an ogre and because it's like the humor context? Like, is that what makes this work? Yeah, the surreal environment that they've established in this issue. I, I think a lot of people look at that and they're like, oh, it's just another weird thing. But it's not just another weird thing. It's, <laughs> it's a very telling thing. <laughs> it's the specificity of the reference there. Yeah, the shirt says butch. <laughs> like, these are like bondage fetish underwear. Like, he's got the leather vest. He's got like a cuff, like a fancy leather cuff as well. This is like a, a style and ogre. Yeah, it's pretty delightful (laughs) this is this is an honest serious question for me is the tentacles thing more of a claremont thing or more of a davis thing or is it a both thing claremont he does tentacles a lot including giving women tentacle arms this is true davis likes drawing them too though yeah that's true (laughs) what do you think maybe they have a book club i'm just trying no i'm just i'm like roughly in my head trying to see how much does davis do this outside because claremont certainly does this outside of davis books and i'm like in my head trying to ruffle through davis artwork that is not written by chris to see if, see if it's I just see it's so much. it's so everywhere that i feel yeah. like we would have to do it because i mean you know like i've talked a couple of times on the pod about the 85 nightcrawler solo there's lots of tentacle stuff and tail stuff going on in that book as well which is all dave cockrum right this is also very much 1989 is we're not using the words correctly yet but manga and anime are beginning to have much more of a hold over american comics and cartoons yeah akira would be out at this point right yeah uh, well akira would be out and known by americans by now yeah Yeah. um akira on college campuses you're starting to get something that will not be appearing in the youtube feed and we will not be linking to on the website or on twitter so if you want to know gig google it but legend of the overfiend is out and things like that are happening and people are knowing about them in a few issues we're going to have some more intentional anime inspired stuff yes that's going to happen i think that there's some intentionality to that being part of this world well what's the nature of you know we're becoming known as a podcast that talks about sex caliber a lot so i mean like what's <laughs> what's the nature of when we're having that as an element of a book like this like we talked about this isn't a porn book right this has got elements of sex farce and like sex and romance are very central to this book and yet like how is something like you know pg versions of tentacle porn like i mean how is that allowing us to kind of have that presence and absence like what is it facilitating for us in terms of using fantasy to sort of incorporate sexual metaphors that are not about sex but are so clearly about sex because it's just really stood out to me how many tentacles there are in this issue it's really a lot there's like four (laughs) separate instances i think it's about sexual tension it's the same idea of like the horror thing of don't show the shark do you want to expand on that because like i think i know where you're going but i'd like you to say well i think I mean, okay, I'll use the terrible analogy of comparing it to Twilight, which is called chastity porn. Uh, the idea being that the sexuality is actually um, greatly enhanced by having it never being taken to its logical you know, sort of trajectory fulfillment. I think Excalibur is doing a lot of that. I mean, the characters are obviously having sex off panel. That, that's ridiculously clear uh, in, in so many cases, but we're not seeing that. Their relationships are sexually charged, but not often um, directly sexual. You get Kitty Rachel, that's at play at this point. Kitty Kurt to some extent, if we're going to talk about that. The only one that's really textual is Brian, Megan, and maybe Rachel Malister, but probably not. So I not think yet, certainly. We're getting this idea of like affinity spaces for all the readers' dirty little minds to take the building blocks that we see on the page and allow them to fantasize and think about um, um, what kind of sexual relationships are happening off panel. So every time you get a little suggestion, you get like a tentacle or a knowing glance or a dryad. Um, all these things are are like fuel for the fire to some 
degree. I'm just like thinking now about what makes this book so sexy and what makes almost superhero comics in general so sexy is that like they're all foreplay and no sex. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. Which like, you know, Mainstream is a critique of them. Is. Yeah, 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 yeah. There's other things going on at the same time as this, right? But then like, you know, that can, yeah. I, I get that people complain about sort of the absence of sex, but sort of that constant foreplay and that constant teasing can be intensely sexy as well. Can we rewind to like three weeks ago, we were talking Inferno. Claremont's writing Excalibur at the same time as he's writing the primary Uncanny X-Men book. And it is made quite clear, extremely clear at the beginning of Inferno that Madeline and Havoc are sleeping together. Oh, yeah. It's not vague at all. It is blatantly obvious. And I think that there's and I think by this time. Allison and Longshot, think, too. Yeah, Allison and Longshot are clearly sleeping together. Betsy is trying, is specifically trying to seduce Colossus. In New Minutes, it's heavily implied that, not shown, but heavily, heavily implied that Gossamer and Sunspot are sleeping together. This exists not just in like sort of a head, headcanon shipping kind of way. It's part of the narrative. So I don't think he's afraid of that. I think that with Excalibur, he's doing what under code era comics was sort of the intention of well if we temper this down and make it a little more silly maybe girls will read it like i think that there's a little bit of that as though you know women don't read you know as though women hadn't been watching soap operas or reading romance novels for hundreds of years you know <laughs> at this point but there's like this sort of almost a we need to make this safe so it can be fun if it's fun and safe and we don't show anything we can just hint at stuff and go ccc because i don't think i think it's very gendered still in the way we're approaching comics at this point you know we we're, we're in a world right now where elf quest is coming out and doing very very popular in the direct market there are other yeah. things that, that are happening it. yeah and they're happening and they're available but comic book stores in 1989 actually in 2021 but very much in comic in 1989 the beginning of the direct market i'm working in a comic book store and it is a boys club Oh, yeah. It is very much a boys club. And I think this is sort of an intent to break that in a way. See, that's you know, fascinating. Because the options are, yeah. I was going to say that's fascinating to me what you're saying, because I agree. But, but I, I, because we've got that Brian and Megan relationship in which Megan is almost made vulnerable by Brian's sexual attraction to Megan. Yes. Right? So you've got this weird kind of counterpoint there that I'm going to ponder also for she, days. Yeah. But, but also <laughs> Megan is, Megan, Brian, Kurt very much as a soap opera right. right like we've we've said that on this show it's been it's come up specifically um i think sydney said it Some, somebody said it literally called it that the first time but not only is she a so is it a soap opera it's a soap opera where we have a literal with the courtney saturnine you know subplot we have a literal who is cheating on who storyline that i think is very much from that vein and it's a little different than what's happening with like say kitty alistair and rachel well i mean i gotta throw in a comment here like about the accessibility which it's not that all of my thoughts on that level are about nightcrawler but i do think that that's like sort of an element of that for me anyway i mean you brought up elf quest and you brought up sort of like <laughs> the appeal of that for female fans you think about like kurt certainly having a visual element of that as well and like the ways that he's being sold to I don't want to say just a female gaze because he's sold to all sorts of, sorts of gazes here but the accessibility of a character like that within that love triangle you know he's like a cute boy who's nice you know Usually, and yeah. like I know I know he <laughs> has like that sort of like uh, you know we talked in the last issue last about, episode yeah, yeah, yeah. yes <laughs> but like at the same time I think for the most part like I mean what he's just known for is just being nice I mean you think about like the way he treats Kitty he treats her with total respect you know like he totally like seeds power to her where it's appropriate and he's like an adult man doing that for this 14 15 year old girl and like that's really important to me like as a female reader reading this book and i do think that there's a certain sense in which because it's not a porn book it is more accessible and that is very gender essentialist and i totally take your point there that you know women like hardcore porn too and that is totally true and you know there's ways to do that that can be safe or less safe for certain female audiences depending too just because part of what is making us resistant to that is because watching certain forms of hardcore porn you're like gonna see yourself objectified in ways that are gonna make you uncomfortable and that feels unsafe so sometimes when you have this foreplay space with sort of these metaphors and possibilities like when someone is being sort of sucked into like a sexy soupy tentacle pool rather than like having hardcore
hardcore sex on panel that can actually be more accessible. Like we think about those things as being almost dirtier or something or like more quote unquote perverted. But like, I do think that there's an element of that that makes it accessible. And I like, I really liked what you were saying there about that. Like, cause I know that I don't want to say that that's like just a gendered thing and that it is just that because like so many different cases are at play here. But I do think that there is something to that. I certainly find Excalibur to be a particularly accessible book. And it's definitely one of the things that I really, really like about it. I mean, what I want to just bring up quickly because we can talk about it more in some upcoming um, issues, but with the Rachel and Megan thing, what was going on in this scene with like Rachel denying Megan's help? Because I think this was an important scene that I just want to make sure that we note so that we can come back to it in the future. Well, wasn't it sort of a response to the earlier issue when... Like if you haven't read those, I mean, presumably most of our listeners are following along. So, you know, from three issues ago, I think, <laughs> where Kitty is observing while, you know, Kitty and Kurt are observing, oh, she turns into whichever one of us is closest. And then when Rachel is too close, their powers interact in weird ways that Rachel is uncomfortable with. So I think it's a throwback to that. But yeah, that's what that's what I was suggesting. I just wanted to bring it up because it does really come across powerfully that like Rachel is trying to keep Megan out and sort of they're having to develop a bond to get past that interaction of their powers and like get past even some of the fundamental differences in their personalities. I think it's going to be a through line. So I did just want to like mention that scene so that we can make sure that we took note of it for future discussions of their developing bond because they are going to develop a very interesting bond over the course of the cross time caper. I also wanted to talk about, so we've talked about Kitty and Kurt and their relationship before on this pod but i know that when you were first reading this series kathy and i know that in your revisiting of it too that you have a particular affection for the bond between those two characters and we don't have a ton of their relationship kind of on panel here but we haven't talked a lot about sort of the interaction specifically between kitty and kurt since almost like sword is drawn and like the moving day issue where they have like the long conversation together and i was wondering i have a particular bond with these characters as well and full disclosure i have shipped them together from time to time um not in the context of Excalibur please don't at me about it um it's like I will admit that sort of the context of their relationship in X-Men Evolution sort of has shaped my view of their relationship a little bit they're closer in age in that show and it was a popular shift from that show and that maybe sort of factored into my rereading of some of these comics but at the very least they're characters that have kind of a very deep bond with each other and you know it's partly just the terribleness of me that I always want deep character friendship bonds to become romantic as I can't help myself but in terms of just the friendship between these characters being kind of a very special relationship because the core of what I like about their relationship in any context is just the nature of their friendship as being sort of this relationship founded in mutual respect and love that is like and again it doesn't have to be romantic love but just that it is this cross-gender friendship that I think is probably my favorite cross-gender friendship probably in all of X-Men comics and I know that you have a particular fondness for this friendship as well so I wanted to give you a chance to a chance to talk about that if you wanted to oh sure um and i kind of feel the same way you do it's this very deep friendship that has developed over time out of kitty's initial fear and she has not just pushed back from that but she has literally defended him uh mobs of people and so i think i think that says something about her i'll say devotion to him and when they are waking up they're the only ones left um i think that that kind of cements that bond there between them and I do really enjoy how respectful as you mentioned he is of her and just the way they they are able to support each other very mutually so even though she's this younger person and he's an adult man they do really kind of play off of each other and sometimes she rescues him and sometimes he rescues her and it's it seems very um a lot more balanced than sometimes you might see things or that things maybe used to be at one time I really like that and then you were you were mentioning about shipping them and and I think that friends to lovers trope has is one that is very popular for lots of people because you see those deep bonds forming and that mutual respect or whatever and it does I mean sometimes it does really push you in that direction make you want to see more for those characters and and to see a kind of a healthy happy relationship for them especially characters that you really like and you want good things for them yeah I think that's like what happens to me when I like I turn perfectly good friendships into romances just because I'm like well they're already so happy maybe they could be even more happy by just like being in love with each other or just kissing 
kissing. And like, again, we're going to be clear, we understand the age difference between these characters and Excalibur. Right. And we're not saying that, but you know, we have a lot of sliding time scale stuff that happens in comics. And like, we have a lot of different contexts that these characters have appeared in. And we have like a lot of different interpretations of like, even the sort of context that these characters do belong into. So, I mean, I just like, yeah, I find some of those conversations about sort of our fantasies related to who these characters are and relationships and romances and friendships to be very interesting because we all come at these things in kind of different ways. And I know that when I first told Andrew that like, yeah, I've written some Kitty and Kurt fan fiction from time to time. And like, you were like, whoa, I don't see that at all. And I was like, yeah, I can't, the heart wants what it wants and I can't like help myself because, see, you know. For me, they're just, and again, I, I have no problem with other people not seeing it this way. You know, we've talked about everybody comes to these different ways. But for me, they're brother and sister. Their, their relationship yeah. is two brother and sister, which is weird because as everybody knows, I actually do like the relationship where Kurt is sleeping with his other sister. So, you know, <laughs> I can't, I can't explain it, <laughs> but, but, it, but like, it just seems very wrong to me for the two of them, but I get why other people, and I also was not really a fan of evolution. So I yeah. like the earlier X-Men series. So I understand how, you know, my context to these characters is a little different. I would like to also say that uh, Anna wrote um, a guest thread on the Claremont run about that friendship. And I think it's the, my, like my absolute favorite of anything that's ever Aww. appeared on the Claremont run. Yeah. And it made everybody Aww. cry. Oh, we should link to it. my God. <laughs> I will. I will. Yeah, I distilled a lot of my feelings about their kind of like relationship. And like, again, it is sort of the deep bond of friendship between these characters that makes me want, you know, in sort of a different context, a different world, like maybe where they could be the same age, you know, that they could have sort of a relationship with each other or something. Oh, platonic love can exist. <laughs> I know. I know. It can be that. It can be yeah. that, too. And I'm good with it on that level, too. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not fighting for them to get together in comics or something like that. Definitely. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm not writing them so it's not up to me it should be i like a lot of your um revisionist histories of of, of x-men lore well it kind of gets us full circle though to like you know the identity of cross time caper and maybe like how the x-men universe and the storyline in particular facilitates some of those things right because we are going to encounter different worlds where characters have different relationships with each other and it just like puts you in the mind space to like want to imagine different relationships between different characters you know within this space because there is so many there are so many cross gazes right i mean even within we talked a little bit about the kitty alistair rachel love triangle for me the only way that that love triangle works is if it's actually the jealousy is between kitty and rachel but alistair is just like a conduit for a kitty and rachel relationship that does not play out in the context of excalibur but at the same time through the amount of cross gazes that we have here we have some of those possibilities introduced right we which should I think note really the side story which we've we've alluded to on a previous episode but not talked about there is a side story that happens during the cross time caper written much later where kitty and kurt are a couple yes <laughs> and I was thinking it'll probably come up on a future episode because it's specifically in reference to kind of the context of Excalibur 16 and 17 but um, we've alluded to in the past there's a Marvel Comics Presents issue I think it's Marvel Comics Presents 5 yeah, you, you know just know that from, off the top of your head Love yes I know like, that off the top of my head it's number yeah. 5 <laughs> so we talked about that before as like being very explicit about Rachel and Alistair being together in that comic Kitty and Kurt are very much together in that flashback to Cross Time Caper as well and it is written by by Claremont and I will say like as much as I have feelings about those characters that shocked me like yeah. I was like the me age too. for them there it didn't make sense and I don't shift them in that context so that shocked me I will put the panels up on our, our social and everything but you have Kitty and Kurt dressing up in their very sexy costumes from one of the sword and sorcery planets he is holding her with his tail wrapped around her thighs and mm -hmm. like they're holding hands and she strokes his face and it is mm -hmm. very romantic and that yes, was really is. out of left field for me you called it romantic i called it written by axel braun you know so <laughs> <laughs> well i mean yeah it gets us right back to tentacles doesn't yeah, it it does what's it kurt doing with that tail but yeah and like i don't have any explanation for that i don't know whether that was just the artist misinterpreting it or whatever but i mean kathy i know that you know the issue as well like were you very like shocked to see that yes uh, very much shocked not just because of her age at that time but because you don't ever see those two put together romantically ever yeah no 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 yeah. So that, you think like we've been to some cross time caper world where that was
was the thing, mm-hmm. but yeah, never. And I think that that's part of like why it's not a popular ship too. It's more of an X-Men evolution ship and not a comics ship at all. But, um, but yeah, <laughs> it'll probably come up again because like we're going to get to the issue that specifically intersects with that issue. And maybe we can talk about the Kitty and Kurt relationship more at that time because they have an interesting interplay in some of those issues coming up. I want to make sure that we don't not talk about the Nigel thing because it is a scene. So it's the scene where, how else do I describe it? It's a scene, right? So we have Nigel showing up with the tech net and they transform him into Courtney and his ideal version of himself and then to a hybrid of the two. Who wants to take a stab at what's going on here? We've had Nigel as a background character in the series from the very beginning. He's just been taken up valuable page space to me up until this point. Is something interesting finally happening with him here? What did we make of the Nigel scene? This is all Andrew. <laughs> I, I really was thinking you'd be the one to answer andrew i don't know what that says about our opinion of you but yeah i'll just start by reading the quote here uh for joy boy's ability is to take the heart's desire of his prey and make them rude reality in nigel's case it's to be the ultimate man so he can truly master his employer courtney ross he gets both wishes with a vengeance but the picture is of him picturing himself as a manly man aside courtney ross but he becomes part courtney ross so you're getting this really kind of cool like i don't know old school freudian type of psychological question of is your desire to possess or your desire to become and how do those two desires intersect and the answer is joy boy can't make that distinction and just lumps them together so i think we're we're taking nigel's fantasies or desires and their connection to his motivations and we're channeling them in a direction that is much more interesting than this frat boy corporate jag um, that he sort of started with and who he still is at the surface level and we'll see this carry through um, once we get a little bit more into vixen and a few other related story beats like it's interesting but i still it doesn't sell me on nigel as being interesting and i still think he's taken up way too much space in the story <laughs> i mean if mav hates the kitty rachel Ariston, alistair love triangle i'm just like every single page that nigel is on i'm like you could have literally any other excalibur character on that page i'd be much <laughs> <laughs> this is but the it is it is an interesting scene and if yeah. for anybody who hasn't read it i do encourage you to well we'll have the um, image up yeah. on both our video which yeah. check out yeah. our videos on youtube the mav creates and our our social as well this is the most interesting nigel is in the entire run of excalibur definitely this, this <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 yeah, anna's not wrong he's a waste of space he's i mean i i get why he needs to be in the story but you know yeah i skip over him <laughs> um he's i think that for me he's interesting here because he's what andrew just said he's confused you know there's a freudian i want to sexually possess courtney ross but i also want to be courtney ross and joy boy puts them together but i don't think that's much of a version i think that there's a little bit of queer confusion inside of frat boy nigel that is like oh no question a, a frat boy veneer and this is joy boy is giving him his honest desire he does want to be courtney ross and he does want to be brian basically i mean like the, his perfect man is brian like that's brian's body that he's becoming and then he smashes them together and i think nigel's a little more interesting from here on out because he does you know, frankly because he's slightly more queer he, he keeps the bleach blonde he, you can see his earring here that saturday nine pinned to his ear and there is a little bit of a you know less of a you know i don't know ladies man just wasting space and more of a henchman but he's got less to do increasingly less to do from the narrative which is great <laughs> but um i don't know no, I, I, he's, he's useless. It's just, it's an interesting visual, the body horror of it and the ramifications of what does this sexually mean from a Freudian lens. And it would be much more interesting if I cared about the person it was happening to in the slightest. Yeah. I mean, I like, I like the, the, the idea of like, yeah, what's going on with him and that he's experiencing that queer confusion, even when he's introduced in this issue, like you see him with the earring and he's wearing this coat with these very pointed shoulder pads, right? And there's almost like a femininity or at least sort of like a gender bendingness to his presentation even before the transformation. And, you know, that is interesting to me, but it's just like, why spend all that time with this queer awakening with this character who doesn't deserve that much depth? Can I make a defense of him in terms of his narrative? I don't like him either, obviously. I don't think I'm supposed to like him, but lately, in terms of his narrative presence, this is, again, this, this highly sexually heightened atmosphere that we have in Excalibur. 
but we also have a representation of toxic masculinity in the form of Brian. And I would argue that we need to have someone who's more toxic than Brian. Oh, um, yeah. Otherwise, we're not going to be able to take Brian seriously anymore. So I, I think Nigel is what allows us to allow Brian to still be part of Excalibur and not write letters to Marvel calling on yeah. him being killed. Yeah, I, I was going to say that's a perfect tie-in to the letter that I wanted to highlight from the Sword Strokes letters page before we completely run out of time. Um, and it is a letter from Alan G. Blaza of Kensal Green in London. He's a UK writer. He says, so interesting that he's a UK writer given what he's about to say in this letter. Dear Excalibur, I did not write to give you praise because you get enough of that. I did not to write to say how uninteresting your comic is simply because Excalibur is excellent. He's so tricky, this guy. I just want to get my <laughs> message through to you. And this is all in caps. Kill Captain Britain! Exclamation <laughs> mark. I know that Excalibur has only just started and it is too early to start killing off characters, but since the special edition, Captain Britain has been nothing but a pain in the neck. He is arrogant, unsympathetic, and plain dumb. Look at the way he treats Megan, and anybody else for that matter. I say he should be exterminated. <laughs> Believe you and me, the Marvel Universe would be better off without one less alcoholic brute. Well, that's all I've got to say. Hope you do follow my advice. Oh, and keep up the brilliant standard of this comic. You all deserve a Nobel Prize. Wow. <laughs> I'll read I'll read the editor response too because it is interesting in terms of like sort of some context of how they're trying to set up Brian. Yes, he is arrogant. Yes, he is sometimes unsympathetic. Yes, he sometimes acts without thinking. And yes, he is sometimes a brute. But he still tries to do the right thing and be the best hero he can be. And we feel that just trying makes up for a lot of his errors. So we think we'll have him stick around a little while longer and try to make up for his trespasses. And we hope that you will too, Alan. <laughs> It's like they're almost apologetic of how unlikable they've made Brian, which is funny. <laughs> That's the difference. I like hating Brian. Me too. I, I, me too. I enjoy it's Brian. Fun. I don't like hating Nigel. Nigel bores me, and that's the difference. It, like Nigel is a brute in a boorish way because he's just serving a function that is uninteresting. Brian is like like everything about Brian is encapsulated in that point with that conversation with Kurt several issues ago, where he's complaining that too many beautiful women love me, and what do I do? That's Brian, mm -hmm. <laughs> and 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 so I enjoy not liking Brian. Fair enough. Can I? I'll give you the final word to you, Kathy. Any support for you? Like because we've been talking about. I think I'm getting more and more sold on like Kurt and Megan as we've been reading reading the series. Yes. This is going to come up again, but I really I'm getting more and more sold on it. Any like where do you stand on the love triangle? Should any of these characters end up together? We've been asking people that when they've been on. Should any of them be together? Yeah, probably any not. Of those three, yeah. <laughs> Fair. There are just so many complicating factors between all of them. Um, wow, that's quite a question. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think it's probably like a lot of the things we've talked about before that, I mean, you know, I've definitely been seeing the abusive aspects of Brian and Megan a lot more rereading it, but like, I just, oh, that panel with Kurt looking at Megan, I like, I'm sort of, oh, maybe I ship these two. <laughs> Alan Davis just, Alan Davis just draws Kurt's wistful desire for her just so beautifully that I can't help myself. They're very pretty together too. For, they are. Particularly with her, like the fact that she can change into them, you know, as they make out is, or uh, as yeah, they come the, close the, to making the, out. That, that, that's a, part of it. There's a very sexy aspect of that from someone like me who both is in love with Nightcrawler and kind of wants to be him as well. So maybe I'm just responding you just to that. You gotta stay yeah. away from Joy Boy. <laughs> <laughs> Staying. There's a meeting of the round table. No, I can't. <laughs> On that note, um, I think we will wrap things up. Um, Kathy, thank you so much for joining us. I hope you had as much fun hanging out with us as we had I hanging out. I did. I had a really good time, and I thank you for having me on. Next, in one week's time, we'll be on to Lucky Episode 13, in which we will be discussing the continuation of this storyline in Excalibur number 13, The Marriage of True Minds, in which Kitty decides she wants to marry the prince, but not without some interference from this world's Saturnine. We're going to talk more about Kitty in coming-of-age stories with another guest who I know 
knows a lot about both and it's going to be great in the meantime if you liked what you heard please follow us like and review the podcast wherever you're listening to it or watching it do check out the youtube videos they're amazing and mav adds extra content which is super super special please check them out you can find them on our website or if you want to chat with us about excalibur or pitch yourself as a guest or a future episode let us know you can reach out via our website goshgollywow.com where we've got some fun extras and via twitter at goshgollywow where we post daily pages from whatever issue we're reading that week and more fun extras i will note that we are currently booked up for guests through september but we do have spots after that so do keep getting in touch with us we'll try to fit you in if we can thank you andrew and matt for another magical conversation thank you kathy for sharing your story and insights thank you all for listening and a special thanks to maximilian of thought for music for our truly epic theme song play us out Thank you.